Morning, congregation. Today's scripture reading is uh, Romans chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 11 to 16. And you can find that in your uh, Blackview Bibles on 1204. And the Lord is honored when we stand for the reading of his word. Romans 11, 11 to 16. And the word reads in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I mean, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from death, the death? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been, uh, as you know, studying our way through this uh, book of Romans. And we've come to those uh, insightful three chapters Chapters, Romans 9 to 11. And as we uh, entered into this whole discussion on the book of Romans, we have uh, shared about the division that uh, was part of the reason that Paul wrote this book between the Gentiles and the Jews in the church at Rome. Some commentators believe that the underlying reason for this controversy uh, in Rome was because the Gentiles controlled the church in Rome more than they did at most of the other churches. I mean, think about it. The Jews grew up with the Old Testament scriptures. They grew up with the word of God. And so uh, when they became believers in Jesus Christ, they had that whole background. They had the understanding of the scriptures. So many of them became the teachers and the leaders in most of the churches. They were appointed as the elders in those churches. And so a lot of the churches had Jewish leadership, but not in Rome. And the reason for that was that there was a decree from Claudius Caesar that kicked the Jews out of Rome, and it lasted for about 12 years, from about 41 AD to about 53 AD. Now, Paul is writing this letter maybe three years or so after the Jews were allowed to go back to Rome. But in the meantime, the church in Rome had been Gentiles. 
have been primarily Gentiles, and so they were in the leadership positions, and now the Jews are coming back in. And so there is this, this tension that's going on. And these three chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, are addressing how to work that issue out. Trying to understand and interpret these chapters, we've said, is difficult for us in our uh, you know, contemporary situation, primarily because there is differences of opinion on how Israel, the word Israel, how that relates uh, to all of this discussion. What does the word Israel mean? And if you listen to Christian speakers on the radio and all, uh, you read Christian books, you may have heard some teachers say that the word Israel always is in reference to Jewish uh, people, particularly Jewish people that are part of the nation of Israel. You may know also, if you've listened uh, for long in these sermons, that I disagree with that position, that uh, I don't think that Israel always means the ethnic Jews uh, particularly related to their national ethnicity living in the land of Canaan. So does Israel always mean Israel? In uh, one of the devotions recently, I gave you the New Testament reasons why I disagree with that, but I want to take a moment now and walk you through that, because it's very important to understand uh, this relationship when Paul's talking about Israel, to understand how that's working out in this book. And so I'm going to take you through a bit of the Old Testament to get you to, to see what I'm talking about. So, uh, if you want to do a more in-depth study, you could obviously do that on your own. Just get out a commentary or a... Um, a concordance, and look up the word Israel and kind of follow that through. But the first time that we see the word Israel, uh, it is not a nation. It is an individual. It is a single person. It is Jacob who has just been in the midst of wrestling with uh, the angel of the Lord. And as he's wrestling with him, he receives the new name. And the new name, instead of Jacob, which means supplanter, is Israel, which means the one who has wrestled with God. And so it's a single individual that receives that name. And then in Genesis 34, the immediate family, that is the 12 sons of Jacob and uh, his daughter Dinah, they receive that, that term, Israel. If you move on through the book of Genesis, you come to uh, Genesis 47, and there the extended family of Jacob, that is the 70 individuals who are now living in the land of Egypt, they receive the name uh, Israel. And then in Genesis 49, in a prophetic statement, Jacob is blessing his sons, and as he blesses the sons, he talks to them about being the tribes of Israel. All right, so what do we have? Well, we have an individual, 
We have 13 people. It's not a nation. It's not an ethnic group yet. We have 70 individuals, just an extended family. And then this, this promise that tribes will be coming. And that's just in the book of Genesis itself. When the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness, they don't have a land. They're still on their way towards the promised land. They don't have a land. But uh, they're in the uh, books from Exodus through to Deuteronomy. Those descendants of Jacob now, as a people, uh, they are called the people of Israel. Then in Joshua 11, the land itself, the place where they have, have gone, they've, they've moved into Canaan. And now the land is called Israel. All right? So you, you see the, the various ways that that term Israel is being used already uh, in the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, if we move along, there is an incident at the end of the book of Judges in which the 11 tribes are fighting against Benjamin. Benjamin is the 12th tribe, right? So you would think that you're talking all of those would be Israel, and yet the 11 tribes are called Israel against Babylon. So Israel is against Babylon. Right? And you say, well, isn't that all the people? Well, no, because now you've divided off a whole tribe. I've said that they're not Israel. All right? So as we keep moving on our way through, we get to the Psalms. Psalm 73 identifies Israel as only those who are pure in heart. Okay. So it says, you know, Israel, the pure in heart of Israel. Right? So it's not just all the ethnic people in Psalm 73. It's those who are true believers that are identified there as um, Israel. And then, as we move on to the book of Isaiah and get into the prophetic books, we have in Isaiah 49, only the Messiah, the one who is, is to be the servant, is called Israel. A single individual, one person, is called Israel. In Ezekiel 47... You have the, uh, the Ezekiel talking about all the peoples of the nations, and he says, and all the people of the nations are as natural citizens of Israel. So he has just included with the term Israel all the nations that have believed and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 54, the God of Israel is called the God of the whole earth. So we're not just talking about a land or a small group of people. We're talking about the God of Israel is the, the, the God who rules over all peoples. So when we come to the, the term Israel in the New Testament... You can't just say it's an ethnic people because we've just looked at about 10 different ways in the Old Testament that the name or the term Israel is being used. 
So what does it mean? It means what Paul actually says in chapter 9, that all of Israel is not Israel. And then he spends the next three chapters helping us to understand just what he means uh, by that. Clearly the term Israel has multiple meanings in Scripture depending on who's being addressed and why they're being addressed. If we're going to understand this 11th chapter that we're in, we need to understand that basic truth. And as we do so, I want you to consider our theme from this passage today. How God makes all things work together for good in salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. God makes all things work together for good in salvation not just for Jews, but for the Jews and the Gentiles. Now this comes out of, of course, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is a dividing point, in a sense, of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 8, verse 27, is a discussion of the, the progress of salvation from being lost completely to the saving work of Jesus Christ on through the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ with the promise of glorification. Right? And so he has progressed us through an understanding of salvation. We come to Romans 8.28, and Romans 8.28 is the bridge between that progress of salvation at the, uh, in those first chapters, or the process of salvation, and then into the progress of salvation. How is the gospel now going to go to the world? How is it going to reach the world? So the process of salvation leading to the progress of salvation from Romans 8.29 through Romans 11. All right, so that's, that's the process. And the bridge is that all things work together for the good. All right, for those who, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so Romans 8 forms that bridge, and it is seen here in this passage that we have before us. If you're following along with the outline, you'll see that there's a number of things that uh, are defined for us in this book as we seek to understand what is the progress of salvation from the Jews moving out to the Gentiles. Why did the Jewish leaders then, okay, why did they fail to believe on the Messiah, Jesus Christ? And what is the result of that? Well, Paul gives us the five-fold condition of Israel's loss. What happened because these leaders in Israel failed to believe on Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, most of the Jewish people followed their leaders rather than turning to Jesus Christ. So the five-fold condition of Israel and their loss of salvation at the time that Paul is writing here. So Paul uses five terms to describe that condition. The first term, he says, is that they stumble. They stumbled. Verse 11, so I ask, did they stumble? And his answer is, yes, they did stumble. All right? Yes, they did stumble. 
This goes back to uh, verse 9, where he wrote, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block. And we described the fact that that table that was being discussed was all the blessings that God had given to Israel, all the wonderful things that Paul talks about back in chapter 9 that are the benefits that they have, and yet those things became a stumbling block that kept them from seeing Jesus. They put all of their stock, all of their focus on the blessings, and they failed to see that those blessings were pointing them to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, they did stumble. And as they bragged about their ancestry, and they bragged about having the law, and they bragged about those things, they missed Christ to their loss. There's a second description, though, that continues on from that in verse 11, and that is the fall. He says, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And here, his answer is no. Yes, they stumbled, but no, they did not fall. Because the word fall here means to be uh, sent to perdition. To fall into the pit, to fall into hell itself. And so he said, you know, there's um, stumbling over Christ. Does that mean that they can no longer have salvation? That God is not going to save any of them? And of course, his answer has been no even earlier than this, because he said, I'm a Jew. And I have trusted in Christ. And so obviously not all the Jews are going to be lost for this. But his hope is that as long as they are alive, that they will still have that opportunity to hear the gospel and their lives can be changed. And I hope that that's the way that you understand what you're supposed to be doing, just as Paul. That you do not look at people and say, oh, I've tried, they don't want to listen. Because if Paul did that, he would never proclaim ever again to a Jewish person, the gospel. Because when he did, what happened? He would get beaten. He would get stoned. He'd get tossed into prison. But he continued to share the gospel because, yes, they had stumbled, but no, at this point in their lives, they were not eternally condemned. He gives a third description of their condition. That third condition is, he says, the trespass. Right? Romans 11 verse 12 says, rather through their trespass. Now, there's a, he doesn't just use the word sin. He could have used that, but he doesn't use the word sin. He uses the word trespass because trespass has a very specific concept to it. Trespass means that you know that something is wrong. You have the law, for instance, for the Jews. You know that this thing, and you willfully choose to go against that. So did they sin? Yes. Did they sin willfully? He's saying, yes, they did. Their choice was to reject Jesus Christ, and that brought to them condemnation. If you go back to chapter 8, for those who are believers, there is therefore now no condemnation. But for these Israelites who had rejected Jesus Christ, Their trespass was leading 
to condemnation if they don't repent. God had provided everything they needed to see the truth of the gospel. He provided all the wonderful ways for them to see the glory of God, more so than the Gentiles had. And yet, they turned away. They rejected Jesus Christ. There's a fourth condition that he describes here as they they turn to sin. And he says, it's failure. Their failure. The end of verse 12, if their failure. What's he talking about failure here? Did their sin make them fail to receive God's promise is what he's saying. And again, his answer is yes. They they have failed to receive what God opened up to them through the prophets and through the law and through the patriarchs and then through the coming of Jesus Christ and through the miracles that he performed and the teachings that he gave, all of the beautiful, wonderful gifts that God had provided for them because they hardened their hearts and because they turned from Christ, they failed to receive what Christ was offering them. They failed to understand the wonder of that salvation. And I have to ask, is that true of you? Are there those in this room? Are there those that are watching today who have had all those opportunities? You've heard the good news of the gospel that's been proclaimed to you in a variety of different ways, and you failed to receive. You failed to trust in Christ. Those four conditions of the people of Israel led to their current condition at the time of Paul in relationship to God. Rejection. Rejection. Verse 15, for if their rejection. Now this isn't talking about their rejecting of of God and of the promise through Jesus Christ. This is talking about God's rejection of them. Their turning away from the gospel, their hard-heartedness with the gospel, their trespass and their failure led to God turning his back to them. Oh, may that never be said of God doing that to you. That you come to that point in your heart where you turn away from God and God turns away from you. The whole of the Old Testament continually shows us But the Jewish people, as they, on a regular basis, turned away from God, that God would then reject them. It happened in the wilderness. When they said, we're going back to Egypt, and God said, no, you're not going back to Egypt, but you're not going to the promised land either. You're going to wander for 40 years until all of you die because you've rejected the hope that I've given you You've rejected the promise that I gave to you. 
And whenever Israel turned from God to worship the various other gods, Baal, Asherah, God rejected them. And we see it in Assyria coming down and taking over the northern kingdom. And then Babylon overthrowing the southern kingdom. Time and time again. They stumbled and trespassed against God. They failed to receive his promises. And God turned his back to them. As Paul wrote, this failure of the leaders of Israel and those who followed those leaders caused them to stumble in their trespass rejecting Jesus Christ, failing to trust in him, and now they were suffering the ultimate punishment as God rejected them as he had their forefathers. However, God's rejection of the Jewish leaders in Paul's day, he declared, did not fall so far that they could not repent. And that's the hope In all of those five statements, that second one, did they fall? May it never be said that a person can fall so far from God that they can't repent, that they can't turn back and be saved. However, the scripture says, What man means for evil, God means for good. So let's consider the fourfold comfort that comes from Israel's loss. The fourfold comfort for the Gentiles in the midst of Israel's failure. There is hope. There is life. The very trespass of the Jewish leaders as they stumbled over Jesus Christ, opened up the way for the gospel to go out to the Gentiles. And that should bring great joy and comfort because we, for the most part, are Gentiles. And we have received that good news. We who were once not a people. The scripture says we are now the people of God. We were not a holy nation But now we are a holy nation. So consider the wonderful comfort that we have attained through their failure to trust in Jesus Christ. And oh, what glorious news is that we have salvation. We have salvation. Romans 11, 11 says, because they stumbled and they fell and they have their trespass, because of that, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Oh, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that if we love, we do not rejoice in evil. There should never be a time that we rejoice that the Jews are lost so that we can believe. That's not what Paul is saying here. But what he is saying is that in spite of the fact that they have fallen. God has still been merciful to us. And the gospel has come 
And we have been able to hear the truth. The way of hope, the door to eternal life, was now opened and visible to the Gentiles so that they might see the glory of God and they might trust in Jesus Christ. Satan had once blinded the eyes of the nations so that they did not know the truth. But now Satan is bound so that the gospel can go out to the nations and the nations can believe. Praise God, we were not, at one time, we were not born of the physical seed of Abraham. But because of God's grace extended out to us, we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Abraham, that the scripture says, was a friend of God. And we, through Jesus Christ, are no longer called servants, Jesus said, but I call you friends. Friends. He provides a second comfort for us by referring to the riches for the world. 11, 12, verse 12, chapter 11, verse 12, says that their failure means riches for the world. You know, the, the word that's translated world there is the word cosmos. It can, it can narrowly be talking about the, the lost, but in, in this situation, he's not talking about the lost, the, the world as opposed to Christ. He's talking about the cosmos. He's talking about the, the, the world that God had created. And we go back to, to chapter 8, and we look in chapter 8, and it talks about how the whole of creation is groaning as it waits for the, 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 the um, revealing of the sons of God. The wonderful truth that what God does through saving us has an impact on the whole of creation. It's a glorious truth. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the whole of creation now has access to the blessings that God had originally purposed. Christians are called to return to God's command to Adam and Eve to be stewards of his creation rather than just users of that creation or abusers of it. Christians ought to be the world's greatest environmentalists not environmentalists in the way that our, our secular world out there tries to turn the world into Mother Nature, but environmentalists because as those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that ultimately his goal is to bring the whole of creation under his guidance, under his leadership, under his blessing. And as stewards of that creation, you and I are called to care about God's creation and to love it as God loves it. Riches for the world, for the cosmos. And ultimately, that will be fully revealed on the day when Christ comes back and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. But that passage in Romans 8 goes on to say that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. It is not only the cosmos, 
but it is also the blessings of salvation come to us, the riches for the Gentiles. That's where verse 12 goes on. It says, yes, it's the riches for the cosmos, but it's also the riches for the Gentiles, for those who were not a people that now have the opportunity to become the people of God. All the grand blessings that God had originally promised to the people of Israel, all the things that he had said that, that uh, he had done for them, now have expanded out and have become the blessings for all who will believe. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, it describes it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about that. To become an heir of God, That's what God has offered to you and to me. In the book of Philippians, he tells us that that all the riches of God in Christ Jesus have become ours through faith in him. And all those great grand blessings that we start reading in Genesis chapter 3 and goes on through the rest of the scriptures. Our privilege even exceeds what the Jews knew under the Old Covenant. Because under the Old Covenant, no Jew was ever given the privilege of calling God Abba. Abba, Father. Today, Jew or Gentile, if they trust in Jesus Christ because of Christ, because that his father has become our father, we can now say Abba. Abba, loving, gracious God who is now a father to us as we receive the hope and the promise of Christ. And because of that glorious salvation, And because of the riches with which we receive from that glorious salvation, we have received reconciliation. You see the contrast between the rejection and the reconciliation. What a contrast that Paul puts into this passage for us. There in verse 15 the rejection of the Jews has become the means by which reconciliation has come to the rest of the world. God's arms opened wide through Jesus Christ on that cross as he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That is the gospel. That is the hope that we have. We who were once enemies of God have now become children of God. Heirs of all of his blessings. And it is said to us, there is therefore now no condemnation. Yet even as we celebrate 
this glorious truth of this salvation and the freedom and the riches that have become ours through Jesus Christ, we're reminded by Paul about the Jews, that they have not stumbled so as to fall. They are not under a decree of eternal damnation. Instead, because of his passionate prayer and his spreading of the gospel, his frequent preaching of the truth that has gone to the Jews, he had great hope for what he calls his kindred, his ethnic people, the Jewish people. And so in the midst of all of this comparison between the the Jews having failed and, and the Gentiles then receiving and the rejection and the reconciliation in the midst of that, Paul now turns our thoughts to the threefold consequence of Israel's loss for the Jews. You see, Paul knew that God had not utterly rejected all the people of Israel. The Jewish people may have turned their back on God for the moment, but Paul knew that God intended for them to receive the pleroma. The what? Well, if you've been following the devotionals, you should know what the word pleroma is. But I'll explain it for you. It means fullness. It means fullness. And that's what he says in verse 12. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul has just finished describing how how God had always had a remnant of the Jews. And he he used himself as an example. And he used the 7,000 at the time of Elijah. He used that as an example to say, even in the darkest moments, even in the, the hardest times, God has always had a people from within Israel, those who were ethnic Jews, even in Paul's day, numerous Jews had believed the gospel. We know that from the book of Acts, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 shortly thereafter, and then every city that Paul went into, some Jews believed. Paul had no idea how many Jews would eventually be saved. But because some had believed at his time, he knew that God was going to have all that he had elected of the Jews. That the fullness of those that God had elected from the physical descendants of Abraham, that that fullness would be seen on the day of Christ. That's why he was not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is, a, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not just to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentiles. That's the promise that we had at the very beginning of the book of Romans. And it is continuing on in power and authority as Paul continues to proclaim that truth. That leads us to the second consequence of the reception of the Gentiles. Not only is there this fullness, but it is a fullness because of salvation. 
the promise of Jewish salvation. Verse 15, he says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Do you get the good news there? Yes, there's a rejection. And yes, there's a hardness. And yes, the leaders have stumbled and most of the people have followed the leaders and so they've stumbled. But they've not stumbled so as to fall. Yes, there's trespass in which they have have purposefully turned against the message of of, of what God had given them under the the old covenant and, and turned away from the promise of the Messiah and their failure to accept and receive Jesus Christ. Yes, all of that is true, but God is not done. God is still at work, Paul is saying. The gospel is still powerful. It is still changing lives. It may appear that the Jews had fully and totally rejected Jesus Christ. But Paul cries out, me genita. By no means are they completely and totally gone. And as the Jews begin to see the Gentiles, he said, as he begins to see them believing on their Messiah, the one that God had promised to them, that perhaps by God's grace, they would then believe as well. They would become jealous, not in a negative sense, but rather in a positive sense. They would say, Why are they being saved and we're being so hard-hearted? Why is God working in them and for them? And they would then turn and trust in Christ. God would open their hearts and God would open their minds and they would be saved. And my prayer is that we would be like Paul. We would never, ever give up on even those who seem to be the most hard-hearted. No matter how many times people turn their back on God when you witness to them, no matter how many times they say to you, ah, that might be good for you, but I got my own thing, that you would never give up until they breathe their last breath. How many of us have experienced that people that seemed hardened to the gospel, but on their deathbed, as you've gone to them and you've shared for that final time, God wants you to believe on Jesus Christ. He wants to give you life. And how many on that deathbed with tears streaming down their face have said yes the gospel. That's what Paul is looking for here. That is what he is saying. By no means has God cast them all off. And if my preaching to the Gentiles and the seeing of many outside of the Jewish religion coming to know the Messiah, if that creates a jealousy within them so that they might be saved, then I will preach all the more. And may that be our heart as well. And as a result, Paul gives a third consequence of this possible salvation of the Jewish people. Life from the dead. Life from the dead. It's by verse 15. 
what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Have you ever said that about someone? I bet some of you have. You've seen the gifts and the talents that people have had. And you go, if God would just save them, think how much they could do for the kingdom of God. Right? I know I've said that about people. Uh, Who would know that giving of a shoebox to one girl would mean the gospel going to 200,000 through a Sunday school program? Oh, what God can do through the changing of hearts. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Some commentators think that that means that it's going to be the resurrection at the end of time. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about because he's talking about his day. He's talking about his time. He's talking about his own ministry having that impact. When the Jewish leaders seem so hardened to the gospel, they are as though dead. They seem to be unreachable. But if by his preaching to the Gentiles, God could use that to transform their eyes, take those spiritually hard-hearted and dead Jews and bring life to them, then what would that be like? Perhaps he was thinking even of Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones. Remember that story? Dry bones lying across a field of battle, bones picked clean by the birds, scattered all over. And the prophet is told to speak to those bones. And all of a sudden you hear clickly, clackly, and the bones all come back, and you got a skeletons. Skeletons all over. No more scattered bones, but skeletons. And then all of a sudden, muscle starts going on it. And they start getting a stomach and start getting a heart, a brain, and skin. But they're still dead. Their bodies now, but they're dead. Speak to them, son of man. Speak to them. Speak to the wind. Speak to the spirit. So the spirit comes on them, and the spirit passes over them, and they spring to life. And that's what Paul is saying. The Jewish people and hear the gospel, and it will be his life from the dead, these people who should have it all and should be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. Have you ever hung around any Messianic Jews? Are they excited about knowing Jesus Christ? they, They give their lives to sharing that gospel. Now, life from the dead, the Spirit touching them, changing them, 
and letting them go forth as an army to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Therefore, in spite of the five-fold condition of Israel's rejection of Christ and the four-fold comfort that comes to the Gentiles as a result of that, the three-fold hopeful consequence of jealousy that might lead to the salvation, Paul's not done because he's going to summarize it all with a two-fold conclusion from Israel's loss. What relationship should the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles in Rome have with one another if what Paul has just said is true? He wraps this grand scheme of God for the salvation of the Gentiles, even at the temporary loss of the Jews, into two illustrations. He begins by discussing the first fruits. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, he says in verse 16. In a devotional this week, we learned the biblical truth that the first fruits of the dough was the fellowship offering that was given, that um, was the, the first fruits, the first part of that dough. And then that meant that everything that was then baked from the rest of that dough was also holy because it had been consecrated to God. It's just like the giving of a tithe. You know, you you give the 10%, but the purpose for that is to say, God, all that I have belongs to you. It is all to be used for your glory. It is all to be used for your praise. God, in a sense, consecrates the whole batch of dough for whatever you bake out of it. The first fruits Paul is discussing here in this passage, this first fruits are those first Jews who, like himself, had believed in the gospel. Their belief in Jesus Christ meant that the gospel would continue to bear fruit amongst the Jewish people. That's the promise that he's given that the fullness of the Jews will eventually be reached because of the first fruits that God had given in the Apostle Paul and the, the, uh, the rest of the apostles and then the saving of the Jews that had gone out from that. The first fruits of God's promise that the whole, the fullness, the pleroma would eventually be reached. And what is true of the Jews is also true of the Gentiles. The early Gentile believers became the first fruits of what God did to reach you and me, to bring the gospel across an ocean, to touch our hearts and our lives, that we might hear and that we might believe. Paul is looking at a big picture, and he's seeing how God is at work in the world to save his elect so that heaven will be the pleroma. Heaven will attain its fullness of Jews and Gentiles. May we rejoice in that glorious salvation. May we never give up hope for the people that we know that they too might possibly become part of the fruit that has gone out from the original 
salvation of the Jews in the first century and of the Gentiles in that first century. And then he expands the image. He expands it by discussing the roots. Verse 16, he says, And if the root is holy, so are the branches. In next week's passage, we're going to, to see what he's talking about here when he talks about the olive tree and the grafting that goes on with the olive tree and, and all of those things. But here he's laying the foundation for that discussion in this passage as he discusses the roots and the branches. The Gentiles seem to have forgotten that the Christian faith grew up out of the old covenant people of God. The covenant that God had established with the Jewish people through Abraham and then through Moses and, and David. And that's why it's so important for us to go back and read the Old Testament. Not just to read the Old Testament to see the failures of the Jews. There's plenty of that. But to see the promises. We must see the grandeur of God's eternal purpose his redeeming power, His mercy, His grace, it's so revealed in that Old Testament Scriptures. God saved a remnant, a remnant all the way through the Old Testament so that Christ could come. And the Old Testament is filled with the wonderful promises for anyone who will believe. Take the time to read it, to study it, and to see God and His glory. Don't just focus on the negatives. See the positives of God's great work. Take the time to look deeply into what God has said and what he did for the people of Israel. And then rejoice that you've been grafted into what he started under the old covenant. You've been grafted into the deep roots of God's promise and his purpose as he has worked all things for good from the roots on up through the trunk and out into the branches which are you and me. And he continues to do so in Paul's day and on to our day. What great truth that we see that God working all things for the good for our salvation whether Jew or Gentile. And so as we conclude do you see how God is at work in everything? God doesn't waste anything. The Jews want to turn their back. They want to reject. Okay, then God's going to bounce the gospel off their back and it's going to go out and it's going to hit the Gentiles. And they will believe. God is at work in everything for good, for his glory. But even as I say that, let me ask you, do you care enough about the lost Jews today to pray for them, even as Paul prayed for their salvation? It cuts both ways. You receive the gospel because 
they turned. Let us now call upon God to turn their hearts back through the gospel. Oh, Heavenly Father, guide us in our, in our lives that the gospel might be seen with power, strength, and the glory of God for the salvation for the Jew, for the Gentile, that we might all call you Abba, Father, that we might all be one people, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all in your kingdom. That what is said of the United States, which can never be true because of sin, will be said of the church because of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.